it's going to be Acts 15. We're going to look at 4 to 18 for a sermon I've entitled The First Church Council. Well, long as I read. Here's what it says. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it's necessary to circumcise them, meaning the Gentiles, and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Well, the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us also. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that they are also. All the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Well, after they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins and restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. On May 25th, 1787, delegates from the 13 states of America came together at Independence Hall in Philadelphia with the intent of revising the Articles of Confederation. That was the legal framework under which the colonies formed into a single country. Now, at the time, there was a general consensus among the delegates that the structures and the provisions of the compact needed to be adjusted. I mean, under the Articles, uh, the states functioned really more as a federation of independent republics rather than a single country. The national government had very limited powers, which made it hard to collect taxes, maintain the military, or to settle conflicts between the states. So a revision of the articles was on the mind of those who were attending, but some of the delegates had another plan. They wanted to scrap the Articles of Confederation and replace it with a whole new constitution. Now the paintings that depict this meeting usually show the founding fathers with a, a serene looking men calmly discussing and debating the path forward the country should take. But the actual events were a whole lot more contentious. Among the founding fathers there were those who called themselves the Federalists, people like James Madison, John Jay, and Alexander Hamilton. They wanted a, a strong central government with powers above and beyond the states. On the other hand, you had the anti-federalists, people like Patrick Henry and Samuel Adams and George Mason. They feared a strong central government with expanded powers would lead us right back to the situation that we had under the British. Well, for the next four months in the summer heat, the delegates debated whether or not to replace the Articles with the Constitution, and if so, what kind of provisions the new Constitution should have. Each state had its own concerns and, de and demands, and there were sticking points where it looked like there was no resolution possible. One of the biggest was with the issue of slavery. The delegates wanted to abolish it, some of them did, while others said if they did, they weren't going to sign the new constitution. They found a way to compromise, but they never really settled the issue, and that's why seven decades later we ended up in a civil war over that practice. Well, as unlikely as it seemed, at the time, they were able to hammer out an agreement framed by the 55 delegates, and then 39 of them signed it. After the gavel fell, 
And the first constitutional convention came to a close. Benjamin Franklin walked out the door. He was met by a woman named Elizabeth Powell who asked him this question. Well, doctor, what have we got? A republic or a monarchy? And Franklin responded by saying, a republic, if you can keep it. Now, a republic is a form of government where the citizens get to elect their own representatives, but it's not one that's easy to keep. Ours has lasted 200 years, but during that same time frame, France has had five republics. The first one was short-lived. It ended with the rise of Napoleon. Germany's first republic came after World War I, but it ended 15 years later when the Reichstag was dissolved and Hitler assumed dictatorial powers over the country. And today, as we're heading into this next fall's election, what do you hear from both sides? Democracy's on the ballot. The election of Donald Trump will mean the end of our democracy. Or Joe Biden and the Democrats will try to take away the rights of Americans by keeping Donald Trump off the ballot. Well, there was certainly a lot at stake when the Founding Fathers met in Philadelphia, but there was a whole lot more at stake when the apostles and elders met in Jerusalem to deal with the controversy that came up regarding how a person saved. And while we as Americans should be concerned about keeping our republic as Christians, we ought to be infinitely more concerned about holding on to the gospel of grace. And so to help us do that and learn why we should, we want to look at this passage this morning. So let's pray and get into the text. Father God, we do pray for grace and mercy. Help us to see what's here, why it was so significant, and how it was that it was resolved. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when I do uh, premarital counseling, at some point I usually ask the couple to tell me about the last several fights that they had and how they resolved them. Now, occasionally I guess a couple will say, you know, well, we've never really had a fight. Now, you might think that I'm glad to hear that, but I'm actually not. Why? Because as a married couple, you are going to fight and have arguments. How are you going to resolve them? If you have no history of fighting, you don't know how you'll resolve them at the point. Well, last week we saw that Paul and Barnabas got into a fight, an argument, a heated debate with some of the Jewish Christians when they returned to Antioch after their first missionary trip. These men were insisting that the new Gentile converts that resulted from Paul's preaching had to be circumcised in order to be saved. Now that got Paul hot, but his blood really began to boil when he heard that these teachings of these Judaizers had taken hold in some of the churches that he had established in Galatia. Paul was not only angry, he was apoplectic that these recent converts were abandoning the true gospel for a false one that could not save, but rather would damn their souls. So he fired off a blistering letter to those churches denouncing those false teachers and warning the believers to come back to the truth. Now I have to tell you, this is not a sideline issue. As Paul saw it, by insisting that the Gentiles be circumcised in order to be saved, these false teachers were actually gutting the Christianity of its central truth that were justified, that is declared righteous and acceptable in God's sight by faith and faith alone in Christ. It was understood that this issue had to be faced squarely, and so it was decided that Paul and Barnabas would go up to Jerusalem and have the apostles resolve the dispute. Now, three things that we're going to see in the text as we look at it. First, are two things we're going to deal with today. First is the issue debated, and that's verses 4 to 6. And secondly, the arguments put forward, and that's 7 to 18. So the issues debated. You know, if you go on YouTube, you can find a lot of interesting debates put on by the Oxford Union. That's the debating society of the University of Oxford in England. As a matter of fact, did you know that there's a form of debate called the Oxford Style? In it, you have two teams with three members each who are allowed to speak, and then they start by giving an affirmation which you either affirm 
or the other side then denies. For instance, like Islam is a religion of peace. On one side affirms the proposition and presents arguments and evidence for that affirmation. The other side denies the proposition and provides evidence and arguments to support that denial. The debate's broken down into four sections. The first is the opening remarks. The second is the interpanel discussion. The third is the question and answer period. And the last is the closing remarks. You've probably seen debates like this. Then the jury, which in the case of Oxford is the student union, votes on who they believe won the debate. Now, I doubt that the council in Jerusalem followed that exact format. But Luke does record the events beginning in verse 5, and he gives us the proposition that was de being debated, and it says this, But some of the sect of the Pharisees, who had believed, stood up and said it is necessary to circumcise them, meaning the Gentiles, to and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Now, notice who's making this affirmation. It's some of the sect of the Pharisees. Now, that's surprising, isn't it? I mean, when you read through the New Testament, the Gospels, who are the main protagonists against our antagonists against Jesus? It's the religious leaders, those from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were those who were connected with the Jewish priests. One of them, Caiaphas, uh, was a corrupt high priest. Who, he was the one who tried Jesus and condemned him. His father-in-law, Annas, had been high priest before him. He's also mentioned along with the rest in the arrest of Jesus. Well, these were worldly sellouts who were working with the Romans. But not all the Jewish priests remained enemies of Christianity. We saw earlier in Acts chapter 6, we're told that a number, as the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. But not only the former Sadducees had come into the church, but there was also a number of Pharisees. Those were the ultra-Orthodox of the day. They'd be the equivalent of Islamic fundamentalists in our time. These were the Jews that were very serious about their faith. And according to Luke, here, a number of them had accepted Jesus as the Messiah and had joined the church. By the way, that should be an encouragement to all of us. Some of the greatest enemies of the church may someday be those who will join it. Well, when a person first gets saved, they've got a lot of ideas and beliefs that need to be corrected. False ideas and holdovers from their previous way of thinking. Now, steeped in Judaism, these Pharisees in the church, to them it seemed just self-evident that Gentiles, if they were going to be joined to and part of the covenant people, would have to receive the sign of the covenant in order to do so. When God made a covenant with Abraham, he required that all the male descendants, male members of his family, be circumcised. And he told them that this rite was to be performed on all of his descendants, and it was to be for an everlasting covenant. And of course, God, through Moses, gave the law to Israel. The people were told to keep this law and its requirement, along with its rituals and dietary laws and prohibitions. In fact, Moses pronounced a curse on anyone who didn't keep the law, saying this, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform it. And it wasn't, it wasn't just the descendants of Abraham who were required to be circumcised and keep the Mosaic law. Gentiles who wanted to join God's people were required to do the same. So Uriah the Hittite was circumcised. Ruth, the Moabite woman, she kept a kosher diet after she joined herself to God's people. And that's the way it had been for 1,500 years. So, I mean, it's, it's great that these Gentiles have come to believe that Jesus is our Messiah, but that's not all there is to our faith. They, they can't go through the graduation ceremonies and get the diploma without first doing the classroom, classroom work. You know, before they get their green beret and their silver wings are 
pinned on their chest, they have to go through the boot camp, which is the Mosaic law. It's necessary to circumcise them and direct them to observe the law of Moses. Well, that was the proposition that they were affirming, but that's also the same one that Paul and Barnabas were denying. And that brings us to our second point, the argument set forth. Now, Clark Pinnock was a Christian apologist and theologian who died back in 2010. Sadly, by the end of his life, he had drifted farther and farther away from the faith that he had once held. But earlier in his life, he wrote an apologetics book called Set Forth Your Case. Well, we're not told what the arguments were that the Pharisees made in the church, um, but I think it was probably along the line of the things that I had mentioned. We do know, however, the arguments set forth by those who denied that Christians had to be circumcised. They were made by Paul and Peter and uh, Barnabas, and then finally by James. Look what it says in verse 6. Now the apostles and the elders came together to look in this matter. And the apostles are those that Jesus has chosen to be over the whole church, but the elders were the leaders of this particular church in Jerusalem. It says, now after much debate... Anthony Fauci testified before Congress again this week. He denied that he had ever suggested that the coronavirus could only have come from the animals in the wet market uh, and not in, from the lab in Wuhan. But that simply isn't true. He not only insisted it, on it, that it hadn't come uh, from the lab, but he also tried to stifle any kind of debate and suppress any kind of discussion on it. I mean, how can you call yourself the man of science if you don't allow for real debate? Well, did this debate go on for one hour? Two hours? We don't know. But towards the end of it, we see in verse 7, it says this, Peter got up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now, Peter's referring back to that time when he had a vision, when he was sitting on top of a roof, and in this vision, there was something like a giant sheet that came down and was filled with all these animals, unclean animals, those that were not permitted to Jews, to eat. And then a voice came from heaven saying, Peter, take and eat. He said, no, I, I can't do that, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean. But the voice came back saying, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. Now, Peter didn't know what to make of the dream until some men arrived at his door who told him that their master, a Roman centurion named Cornelius, had a vision where he was told to send to the city of Joppa and fetch Peter so he could tell him the gospel. When Peter got to Cornelius' place, he found the whole household gathered there together, and he began to tell them the good news about Jesus. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit fell upon the people there, and they believed, and they even spoke in tongues like those Jews had done at Pentecost. Now, Peter drew the right conclusion from his experience, as we see as he goes on to say in verse 8, and God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us also. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. What makes a person clean in the sight of God? It's faith in Christ. What makes a person unclean? It's unbelief, which is the fountainhead of all their other sins. It's not circumcision and keeping dietary laws that makes a person acceptable to God. It's trusting in Christ. As Paul said elsewhere, for by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. And so Peter goes on to say in verse 10, Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing on the necks of the disciples a yoke which our fathers, uh, which our fathers or us were not able to bear? You know, the Mosaic Law contains 613 commandments. Many of them 
considering following various rituals, not eating certain foods, prohibition about wearing clothes made of two different fabrics. And of course, the Jewish rabbis added their own interpretation and rules to the law. I mean, take just the one command, remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy. They weren't to work on the Sabbath. But, okay, what does it mean to not work on the Sabbath? Would plowing in your field be work? Well, yeah, it seems like it. How about picking an apple off your tree? That's harvesting. What about lighting a fire? Well, the Jews said you can't do that. Pastor Allen's wife, Louise, worked as a domestic for a Jewish family when she was younger. She had to turn the lights on and off on the Sabbath because to turn the lights on was considered starting a fire, which would have violated the Sabbath. Well, the Jews had all kinds of warnings like this. For instance, if you were on your chair eating when you're done, you didn't want to push your chair back because it might make a groove in the floor. That groove is the equivalent of plowing, and that's work, and that would be violating the Sabbath. Now, the rules for this in the Babylonian uh, Talmud cover a, a book about the size of an Encyclopedia Britannica for just that one command. Now, how in the world could you ever even know those rules, let alone make sure that you keep them? That's what Peter means when he said that this was a yoke that our fathers, nor we, were never able to bear. Peter's saying is, look, if, if we who are born Jews and were raised with this burdensome system couldn't keep it, how in the world can we expect Gentiles who weren't raised to keep it? And then Peter comes to his conclusion, verse 11, he says this, But we believe that we're saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus in the same way that they are. Now I want you to notice what Peter says here. He does not say that the Gentiles are saved the same way we are. He turns around and says, no, we're saved the same way the Gentiles are, by faith in Christ. You see, the law of Moses was never designed to save people. It was given to show people, the Jews in particular, the need for a Savior. The law wasn't given as a ladder for people to climb their way to heaven. It was given as a mirror to show how sinful we are, how dirty we are, and how we need to come to Christ to be cleansed of our sins. And that cleansing only comes when we believe in him. I mean, we sing songs like that, don't we? What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can cleanse my heart within? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I have to stop here and ask you a question. Have your sins been washed away? Have you had your guilt removed? I knew a young man who got in a car accident. I believe he was drunk at the time and he ended up killing an old man. His brother told me that years later he's just still racked with guilt. He can try to suppress it, ignore it, deny it. But apart from Christ, all he can do is cry out in anguish, out damn spot, out. You see, until you trust in Christ as the payment for your sins, the stain of your guilt remains. You need Jesus. You need forgiveness. You see, it's faith in Christ, not circumcision and law-keeping, that makes us clean for God. That's not only true for Gentiles, it's true for Jews as well, as Peter makes clear. Actually, God made clear to Peter when he saved the Gentiles at Cornelius' house when they heard and believed. Now, I have to say, the Holy Spirit must have been working in people's hearts right at this point, because we read this in verse 12. All the people kept silent, and they were listening to Paul and Barnabas as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now look, if, if God was attending the message of Paul that he was preaching by doing miracles, then it sure seems that God must have approved of the message that he was preaching. Now the last person to speak was James, the half-brother of the Lord. Uh, they had the same mother, but not the same father. We read about it starting in verse 13. Look what it says. After they stopped speaking, James responded saying, Brothers, listen to me. 
Simeon, that's just another name for Peter, has described how God first concerned himself about taking a people for his own name from among the Gentiles. It says, The word of the prophets agree with this, just as it is written. After these things, I will return, and I will rebuild the fallen uh, tabernacle of David. And I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things, uh, made these things known from long ago. Someone. Okay, well, we'll just go on. <laughs> the investment company E.F. Hutton, they used to have a commercial where they'd have people that, like sitting at a restaurant talking, and one guy would say to the other guy, he said, you know, my broker is E.F. Hutton, and E.F. Hutton says, and as soon as he said that, everyone would go like this and listen. Well, in the Catholic Church, they believed that Peter was the first pope, and that as the head of the church, when he spoke, the church had to listen because he was the final authority. But usually, you think about it, at a meeting, it's the last person who speaks who generally has the most authority because once he speaks, people listen. Well, But notice with James, even though he's the last person to speak, it's not his authority he points to, but God's through his word. What was the final authority for James? It was the scripture. That's why he quotes here from the book of Amos. Now that scripture is the final authority is made clear by the fact that he shows that the calling of the Gentiles as Gentiles without first converting to Judaism is foretold by the prophets of the Old Testament. And then he cites Amos' prophecy as an example. But what exactly Amos was prophesying and when and how it was to be fulfilled is a question that's debated by Bible scholars and one that would take more time than we have this morning. So we're going to come back to that next week. But for right now, as we make some application of this, I want to think about the whole issue of the authority in the church. Because the two issues that the church was dealing with at the first council are the same two issues that Luther was dealing with with the Catholic Church during the Protestant Reformation. You see, the spark that lit the fire in Luther's heart was the sale of indulgences. Now, the Catholic Church taught and still teaches that a person must become righteous in practice before God can declare him as such. So in baptism, a person's born again, they believe. And then by the grace that comes through the sacraments, you grow in holiness and righteousness. And if you achieve a high enough level of righteousness by the time of your death, then God declares you righteous and allows you to come directly in heaven. But for most people, still having remaining sins in their life, they haven't overcome, they haven't achieved that level. So they go to purgatory, their soul does. And there they suffer and have their sins purged away. And it was uh, believed at the time, and still is today, that the bishops, and especially the Pope, had uh, the power to grant indulgences which could reduce your time in purgatory after you die. So if you were willing to join the army and go on a crusade, the Pope might grant you full indulgences so that when you die in battle, you'd go straight to heaven, not to purgatory. Very similar to Muslims today promising 70 virgins and a trip to paradise uh, for being martyrs. You could also get an indulgence for doing good works or donating money for a building fund for the church. Even today, you can pay to have a mass said for one of your dead relatives so as to reduce their time in purgatory. After a while, the church simply sold indulgences to the highest bidder. Now, Luther thought this practice was cruel and corrupt. I mean, think about it. If the Pope could truly release someone's spirit from the flames of purgatory, why wouldn't he do that for every Catholic? Not just for the ones who donate money to the church. Well, this controversy led Luther to think 
and to think deeply about what Paul was actually teaching in the book of Romans on how a person was deemed righteous in the eyes of God. Well, Luther came to understand when he read the words, the just shall live by faith, was that the righteousness that God demands from us is also given as a gift to us the moment we believe in Jesus. You see, when we trust in Christ's death on the cross, God not only removes our guilt, but he credits Jesus' righteousness, his record of law-keeping, to our account. So that we're counted righteous, not on the basis of what we've done, but on the basis of what Christ has done. So you're not saved by circumcision, or keeping the Mosaic law, or being baptized, or receiving the sacraments. You're not saved by being confirmed, or joining a church, or walking down an aisle, or raising your hand, or by being good enough. We're saved by trusting in Christ's death and resurrection. For by grace you've been saved through faith in that, not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no man may boast. Ephesians 2, 8-9. But you know, that foundational question was undergirded by another question. That's this. What's the final authority for the church and for the Christian? Is it the church? Is it the Bible? You see, the Bible gets the last word because the Bible is the word of God and God gets the last word. I worked with a nice young Catholic girl at the cheese factory. She was very sincere in her faith and we talked often about religion. Actually, she came to my Bible study for a while. I asked her once what the final authority was for her and she said, the church. Then I asked her what the final authority was for Jesus. It gave me a puzzled look, and she said, well, Jesus was God, so he is the final authority. I said, you know, that's true, but when he argued with the religious leaders and debated over issues with them, what did he appeal to? He appealed to Scripture. Have you not read? Is it not written? What did Isaiah the prophet say? Then I said this. I mean, think about it. Even, even when he was facing the devil, what did he do? He quoted Scripture. I asked this question. If for Jesus, the word of God is the final authority, shouldn't it be for the church as well? Then I asked her this question. Let me ask you a question. I said, if the church and the Bible disagreed on an issue, which would you go with, the church, church or the Bible? And she said, the Bible. I said, you're halfway to being a Protestant. Well, for a lot of people, it's not. And sadly, for some people, the only authority is their own mind and heart. You know, it wasn't the Council of Jerusalem that settled this issue. It was God himself. God gave the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles when they heard and believed the gospel. God granted signs and wonders be done by Paul and Barnabas to show his approval for the gospel they preach. And God, through his word, predicted that the day would come when Gentiles and Jews would be granted salvation on the basis of faith in Christ and Christ alone. Let me ask you a question as we close. Have you placed your faith in Christ? It's the only way you can be forgiven. All your religious practices will amount to nothing if you don't have that righteousness. You need the righteousness of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father and God, there really are only two types of religions in the world. There's a religion of grace, where we count on what you've done through your Son, and there's a religion of works, which means we count on what we've done in our lives. But Father and God, if we look to ourselves, we're going to find that we are building on a very uh, weak foundation because no one can stand before you without righteousness and the only righteousness that's perfect is that of your Son and that's where we have to get it. 
So I pray, Father and God, for each one here that they would trust in you and for those who are going to listen uh, over the internet that they also would understand that this is the only way a person can be saved. This is not a small issue. So give us grace and help us also to keep the gospel of grace in our church from this day forward. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to stand by singing a song that's in the bulletin. Christ alone.